Welcome to episode number 144 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast for building a global community around process safety, industries handling combustible dust. I'm your podcast host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we have on the call Dr. Shahab Sokhan Sange, and we're talking about biomass fiber pile management. Dr. Shahab, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Chris, I'm very happy to be here uh, and uh, share the uh, sort of whatever we have learned so far with you and uh, discuss uh, what's going on uh, on the plant. Uh, pile management uh, means that, you know, the material that we get, we pile it at the plant before we turn it into pellets. Perfect. And I'm really excited for this discussion as well. I, Dr. Shahab and myself have been on a, you know, a couple different calls with the Wood, Wood Pell Association of Canada's safety committee that they have there couple other projects and I saw that uh, Canadian Biomass came out with this interview with with Shahab on this um, fiber pile management and improving it. So I thought it was a good topic for combustible dust. If you listen to this podcast to this point, you know that one of the ignition scenarios we run into quite a bit is smoldering combustion causing as an ignition source for a dust explosion. So that's really the thought process behind this. How do we better manage these piles um, of biomass fibers so that we can avoid those type of uh, you know combustion events and that might lead to downstream explosions. Dr. Shahab is an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia in the Chemical and Biological Engineering Department. Uh, his undergraduate degree is from the University of Tehran, and he has a doctoral degree from Michigan State University. In this interview, I want to talk through a little bit of Shahab's background. I want to talk about what is the Biomass and Bioenergy Research Group. That's his um, you know, research group at the university. What kind of work are they focusing on? What are some of the challenges with fiber pile management? And then what are some of the solutions to these challenges? And any recommendations he has for working with industry and associations as a research group? So, Dr. Shahab, can you just kind of start by sharing a little bit of your background? How did you get involved with biomass and then with the Canadian wood pellet industry? Uh, Yes, Chris, uh, as you mentioned, uh, my first degree uh, was from University of Tehran uh, in power and uh, machinery in agriculture. Uh, I went to Michigan State, finished my uh, uh, PhD on grain drying, and uh, following a couple of years of uh, postdoctoral work at University of Minnesota, I joined University of Saskatchewan, uh, where I kind of continued working on issues related to grain storage and grain drying. And just about a couple of years later, I sort of uh, got involved with the handling of uh, forage material like alfalfa, grasses. And uh, at that time, the uh, forage industry was uh, starting becoming a big uh, business in Canada. And of course, uh, the forage industry, uh, when I'm talking about the industry, we really export size, side of the work. Uh, that uh, forage was exported in form of pellets tubes, compacted bales, and so forth. And uh, in the process of making those material, of course, dust was one of the main issues. Uh, so uh, I worked with them about uh, until early 2000 uh, at the University of Saskatchewan. And later on, I joined uh, uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, uh, as part of the U.S. Department of Energy. And there we 
continued working on biomass feedstock supply management and safety issues. And later on, as I kind of continued with the Oak Ridge, uh, I also was uh, or became an adjunct professor at University of British Columbia and got involved with wood pellet side of the business and uh, working with them, continued working on the safety aspects of handling wood pellets. And of course, dust became uh, one of the major concerns regarding the handling of the material. And uh, this was kind of uh, became more uh, critical after there was some fatality on dust explosion on sawmills uh, in northern British Columbia. And uh, Wood Pellet Association became quite concerned about the dangers of dust. And that's why there more emphasis was done on uh, uh, basically issues related to uh, reducing the risk of dust explosion on the wood pellet uh, businesses. So uh, at University of Saskatchewan, uh, the University of British Columbia, uh, we have uh, a group, uh, research and uh, biomass uh, and bioenergy research group. And one of the areas that we're concerned is material handling and uh, pellet durability and making sure that pellets are durable so they don't uh, break break up into dust particles. So those of you that have been listening to the podcast for a little bit, you'll know we had Gordon Murray on in episode 131 um, talking about the history of the Wood Pellet Association of Canada. Um, now I'll give you some of the scope on not the formation of WPAC, but their involvement with combustible dust. Um, him and another gentleman, David Murray, from the MAG Group, the Manufacturing Advisory Group of British Columbia, we had him on episode 97 and 98 of the podcast. They sort of shared between the two of them the impact of these two sawmill explosions in British Columbia in terms of combustible dust in industry. And that sort of led into WPAC and their focus in that area. Also, the MAG Group's focus, uh, Sherry Whalen, we had on in episode 132 talking about PC4 Safety Council and their involvement. And then this is the other uh, different side of it. This is the university's involvement with it, with uh, Dr. Shahab and, and his research. Now, you're, I guess it's fair to say that the biomass and bioenergy research group sole focus isn't combustible dust necessarily. It's, it's you mentioned some of the material handling, pelletizing, make sure the pellets are strong not to break down, and and some of the safety aspects of it. What sort of projects has your group been focused on since you've been working there? Yeah, well, the BBRG, we call it, or Biomass and Bioenergy Research Group, uh, is a group of students, uh, postdoctoral, and actually we have a couple of faculty members. What we're doing, basically, working on preparation of biomass feedstock for downstream processing. Uh, when you know when you harvest material or collect material either from forest or even from agricultural material, municipal waste, they are not in a form that can be used directly for other ap- application or use. Pellet making is one of the applications. This material is bulky, usually have high moisture content. They are contaminated with dirt, soil, uh, stones, uh, other material. So one of the things that we get involved with Biomass Bioenergy Research Group work on ways that we can 
we can work on this material, make it uh, clean. Uh, we can fractionate it into a right particle size, uh, dry the material to a moisture content that can be stored and used. And then, of course, pelletization followed that. We are now getting a little more involved with uh, thermal treatments like uh, torrefaction, uh, biochar, and other issues as well. So the area of biomass and bioenergy research group that uh, we're involved with is quite a niche in terms of uh, the need uh, for research, especially in Canada where biomass is becoming in a variety of form from a variety of uh, sources. Yeah, and so I kind of wrote down some notes here that you mentioned. So this sort of feedstock that would go into these type of pellets or into you know downstream processing you mentioned a couple of key things it's you know generally dirty and bulky may have contaminants in it may have high likely has very high moisture content and then the question like you're saying is you know how do you clean it how do you sort it into the particle sizes that are usable how do you store that and how do you you know get it into a form that either can be pelletized which is actually like another form of changing it so it can be used by industry as well but a key step in that whole process is the storage of that raw material. I think, is that where the fiber pile management comes into play? It's actually, okay, we have all this bulk, wet, contaminated material. You know, how do, how do we store that on site when we bring it in? Is that where the management part of the piles comes in? Yes, uh, of course, you know, storage, we really view it from two points. Uh, one is, of course, you know, our seasons are short in Canada. Uh, by season should means uh, over har- harvest time or window of harvest is very short, especially in agricultural material. So uh, if we harvest the material, we have to store it for the entire year so uh, that an industry based upon uh, biomass can operate. So that's one aspect of uh, storage that we look into long-term storage of material uh, both on the farm as well as in the forest. The other aspects of the storage is, of course, at the site, at the pellet uh, plant, where the material comes in, uh, as I mentioned, in a variety of form, usually in the form of chip type or ground material. The material is piled up uh, at the plant uh, for a period of, uh, you have to have a stockpile, two, three, four, sometimes a month type material there. And uh, the material slowly will be fed into uh, basically other equipment to prepare the material for pelletization. So when we talk about pile management, we talk about this material that's coming into the plant. They call it infeed material. And uh, what are the management that, uh, we have to do or have in order to make sure that pile is safe uh, and uh, does not get into uh, self-heat and other type of things that might happen. So, I mean, that kind of begs the question then, what, what sort of challenges do they have in managing these type of piles and avoiding you know, these type of adverse uh, conditions? Well, the, the foremost, and this is quite known to the industry, is uh, moisture. Uh, this material come depends upon where the source of material is. Uh, you know, even sawdust coming from uh, saw mills, uh, it uh, has a moisture content uh, uh, high. 
if it comes from hog material uh, or bark type of material from forest floor or from other kind of uh, piles in the forest that has been uh, recently ground and brought into the plant, they're all high moisture. And of course, moisture is number one issue that uh, is, uh, causes basically uh, deterioration, of, deterioration of the material. And uh, deterioration means that it heats up, it's a self-heat. And during that heat process, if it's not being looked after, uh, basically it propagates through the pile and may eventually get into combustion. In, in the pile. So moisture is number one issue that we're now you know, concerned with. The other one, uh, issues are, of course, a lot of, um, uh, in some cases, uh, when the material come in, uh, depending upon where they have been taken out, uh, they have dirt contamination in the material, and uh, this material is, of course, exacerbated uh, or make you know the matter worse. Basically, uh, if the material is dirty, it's uh, easier uh, is uh, get uh, spoiled uh, in the pile. So those are the issues that we have to pay attention to to make sure. The other thing is, uh, of course, we have to preserve uh, pellet from elements. So we have. Uh, for example, we try very hard to get pellets, uh, not pellets, I'm sorry, the feedstock or raw material under cover so we don't get rain or snow on the material as much as possible. Uh, it depends upon how long you're going to store the material. If it's a long time, then it has to be covered. If a short time, maybe uh, we can store it for a short period of time, three, four days, and uh, use the material up in a in an open type setting. Okay, so we really have the three kind of challenges: then moisture, um, contamination, and then just preserving the the material, the feedstock from the elements. And you wouldn't have the same challenges there in in Tennessee as you'd have in in British Columbia, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, there is another uh, Chris uh, that I might want to also add is. Uh, a variety of material, uh, often especially in wood pellet business, and especially in Canada. Now in the U.S. is a little uh, situation is different, but uh, because you know early on we are we were using basically sawdust mostly for making pellets when production was not high. But now you know about half and even more than half of our intake material come from forest floor. And this material that comes from forest floor is not uniform. It's got a lot of needles, needle, like if it's from softwood, uh, leaves, uh, if a hardwood, and also species of material that comes in. Uh, you know, we used to get just uh, SPF. Now we might have hemlock. We might have even uh, aspen, poplar, uh, add, uh, you know, alder. You know, other type of wood might get into it. So, wood, and of course, as you know, Chris, this material each has their own chemistry or chemical composition. Uh, their uh, basically interaction with the environment is different. So, we are working very hard with the industry to understand the, the range of the material coming, uh, what are the properties of the material, and how we can minimize. Uh, 
basically self-heat uh, and the causes of the self-heat. And so I guess the, what are some of the challenges or what are some of the solutions then? Um, what are the key activities that companies should do to, to try to avoid this sort of smoldering or, or fires in their storage piles? Well, you know, there are some, you know, long time experience. For example, one of the issues that we tried not to have large piles rather than smaller piles. So if, for example, a pile gets into surface and other issues, we can open it up uh, and uh, basically cool it down, in, you know, in another way. The other is, of course, you know, we have to monitor the temperature, uh, moisture in the piles and uh, have a watch on it, you know, what happens. If we can get as dry as material as possible, it would be beneficial. We have to uh, make sure the material come in, you know, they are not really overly moist. And if moist, uh, you know, we, we should not keep them for long. Uh, we, have, we have just published uh, an article that gives a relationship between uh, time of storage, temperature, and moisture. And these three elements have to be watched. Uh, there is a graph shows, for example, that uh, if the material is um, at 30 degrees Celsius and the moisture is 35%, we only can store it for, say, 10, 12 days. Beyond that, you know, there is potential for self-heat and other issues in there. I, I do want to kind of put an asterisk beside that because it's a good point. These these type of piles, and even if you're storing, you know, if you're transporting this material, say in crates or, or um, ship containers, there's some pretty kind of fundamental tests you can do to see how long that material will take to smolder, to start to have a, you know, a temperature increase and then start to have a runaway temperature increase and then start to have, you know, smolder and flaming. So if you're in, a, if you're in an industry that you're doing this type of activity a lot, it's, it's probably worth your while to reach out to a group like, uh, Dr. Hobbs group at UBC or some testing laboratory to start to characterize that a bit because you can actually estimate how long you can you can store that material for or how long you could ship in a shipping container. There's a lot of cases where you know shipping containers that go to the UK or go to to Shanghai or they they arrive at port on fire <laughs> the material in the containers um, just because that material has been sitting there undisturbed too long the moisture content and the temperature you you've went above that that time threshold. And then it's a really big headache to get it out and, and you know, not cause injury and that one happens. But the point I'm trying to make there is that you can test for some of these parameters using laboratory tests or even full-scale tests. If you're a company working in this area, I don't know, Shab, if do you do work with industry to kind of evaluate those times and, and maybe provide that as guidance for them on their, their storage piles? Definitely. we. That's really one of the focal points in us is basically working with industry, working with their material and talking to them and understanding. Chris, I want to get back a little on the comment. We really, I mean, our experience shows you don't handle this material in containers. I'm talking about 20-foot or 40-foot container, uh, especially biomass. We don't put pallets or cubes or, you know, other form of biomass in container. Uh, containers, uh, first, you cannot usually fill them up. Usually, you fill them up about half, and, and they shift 
during the transportation, as well as containers go through a cyclic uh, heating and cooling, like during the day, they heat up due to the sun or other things, the cooling at night. And during that period, because we're talking about the transportation of anywhere from 15 to 30, 40 days, uh, this material slowly, slowly uh, in the container uh, evaporates, moisture evaporates, condenses on the wall and causes uh, early uh, fun, you know, fungi and uh, molding and other issues. So I recommend don't handle this material in container. However, you know, we handle them in a ship hold. Those are three, four, five thousand ton holds and uh, material is packed there and uh, it's a much uh, safer to uh, to hold them there. Sorry for uh, <laughs> this phone. That's yeah. okay. So, um, but that was a good point that you brought up. I just don't don't want to go over it. They think that uh, you you can handle them with container, not really, especially for shipping. Now, if it's a short distance, uh, say for example, a day or two or three, that's okay. But if long distance container shipment of biomass is not recommended so what what would you recommend then not for the not for the feedstock because i can understand not pot, but for pellets say if you're shipping to the uk are you saying there's a better way than containers like how else would you get it there yeah you put it in the hold uh, you know ship hold these are ocean going vessels uh, anywhere from 35000 ton to 60 70000 ton vessels and uh, basically you put them in there and that's uh, that's the mode uh, of transportation. Of course, you still have to make sure pellets are, say for example, uh, Chris, I don't know if I, we go off the topic here, but uh, say uh, when you load pellets, uh, there are some, some recommendation use misting, right? Misting water, water vapor, so it sometimes settles the dust. Well, that problem is that some of that misting might get into the pellet and become, the pellets become active or reactive and uh, causes self-heating. So we have to make sure that pellets are dry, uniform, they are not hot and other things in there in order to make sure that they are safe in the, pellet, in the, in the hold of the ship. Uh, so, uh, as I said, the, the moisture and uniformity of moisture and preventing from re-moistening is absolutely uh, uh, critical. Uh, now, you may put this on podcast or not, but the other point, Chris, I want to make sure that when you over-dry material, when you over-dry, when that material absorbs moisture from environment, it heats up. Because, you know, the, as a chemical engineer, you know that you basically is a, a heat of formation. So you get, give, you give heat up and that heat come, might cause self-heating or start self-heating. So it's an exacting science though, you know, we practice uh, an industry with that exacting science. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't mind going off on this tangent a bit because it's something that we see a lot. <laughs> And it's it's a really important one to talk about. So I, I kind of made some notes here. Uh, you want to avoid the container ship. You want to avoid putting them in the containers. You mentioned a couple of things: thermal cycling, 
um, the material moving around. So it's a better alternative potentially then to to put in the hold. And also, I guess yeah, it's probably a whole another podcast topic to talk about putting getting pellets across the ocean. <laughs> exactly. The problem is, uh, Chris, also shipping in containers is very expensive. You know the the whole uh, transportation logistics ba- is based on the size of the load that you know so as you go from a container which is really the packaged small package material uh, to a shiphold the economics change tremendously so number 1 number 2 the uh, container have to be loaded and unloaded so during that process basically you damage your material you know, loading and unloading of that material. So what I'm saying, uh, you know, we, we go to another podcast, another time, discuss this in detail, but I'm just, you know, giving that. So if, you know, somebody listens to it, uh, you know, they, they at least approve, have warning, you know. Yeah, no, that's extremely helpful. Um, so on the, on the fiber, on the biomass fiber pile management, I have a couple of key activities here. I have smaller pile size, uh, monitor temperature, monitor moisture content, characterize your materials. That's where we, where we left off is that you can actually characterize the time for a given moisture content for a given temperature, how long it will take to self how long it will take to run away, I guess, to have thermal runaway. Um, what other key activities should companies be looking with on the, the pile management side? Yeah, there is another one that uh, also I have in that write-up uh, uh, that was in Biomass Magazine. And uh, there was a link to it. Is the what we we know equilibrium moisture means? You know what is the moisture content of the material given the relative humidity of the air? Because eventually, uh, material either become wet or dry depends upon the conditions of the air. If air is moist, eighty-five uh, percent humidity and say temperature is 25, 30, eventually that material become wet to that, so become an e- equilibrium, especially especially for, you know, material, piled material, because, you know, in order to get piled material, we cut it into small pieces. And the smaller the pieces, the more reactive surface area that is in the pile, right? So we have to... N- understand the relationship between material moisture content and relative humidity of the air uh, because they this is the two that determine you know how they can basically how how long um, material can stay at a given condition so a pile that say for example uh, we make uh, here in uh, say prince george uh, might be quite different behavior than the pile that we make in in another location that is very hot. Say down the south, I'm just saying maybe in Florida or Alabama or something. So is it the complete? So the conditions of the air will have quite an effect on the moisture and the length of the storage that you can have in there. Uh, and of course, with that goes particle size. As I mentioned, the smaller particle that you make into the pile, it's more reactive. It absorbs easier moisture or dissolved moisture. So it's a more active sites than the particles that are you know, larger, for example. Yeah, I think that ties back. The equilibrium with ambient ties back to your over-drying comment. If it's, if it's drier than the, 
the moisture content of the air it's housed in, that air is going to get sucked out and and cause that. Um, I guess it's not an exothermic reaction, but cause the the pile to heat up as it um, absorbs that moisture. Yeah, you know the heating heating of the pile is, of course, as as we know, we hear is the two phenomena takes place. One is the basically absorbing moisture. When you absorb moisture, material give off heat. It's just, you know, the opposite side of the drying. You give heat to material, it dries. Uh, if the material absorb moisture, it give off heat. It's kind of the two. And it's a reversible process, thermodynamically reversible process. The other one is also, of course, oxidation. You have more air. Uh, you know, the air causes the material to oxidize. But that Oxidation, that process is much slower than moisture absorption. Moisture absorption, as soon as it absorbs moisture, it gives off heat, whereas uh, oxidation takes time. So uh, we are not at this point. Uh, you may mentioned at one point that uh, one of the areas that we have to work and what area is really understand the role of uh, oxidation of the material and the role of moisture and uh, how these two interact, we still don't understand fully how the material heat up to the point of combustion. We understand this. For example, we say that uh, maybe microbial uh, heating, microbial activity is the start of self-heat, start. And then moisture absorption, desorption might be another, and then oxidation. But, the, but how it, you know, evolved into pyrolysis and uh, we saw smoldering and combustion, we really do not have a clear pathway yet to that point. And that's an area that we really like to continue of research. Yeah, it makes makes sense to me. And it makes me think of (laughs) then laminar flame propagation to turbulent flame propagation to to dust explosion, which, which at that scale, we don't have a great fundamental understanding of, we'll say. Exactly, exactly. It's, it really is. And that's why uh, we do not talk about definish, uh, definite processes. We always say probability. Probably, probably it would happen. Probably we'll do this. Because we don't understand, so we just put a probability value. We say, you know, in May, we don't say it will so, you know, like if you have a pot pile and it has moisture and rain comes in, it never heat up, right? It will never. And then another one, you have a dry pile and everything good and so forth, it heats up. So we have these two extreme conditions happening. So that's why our knowledge yet is quite little about understanding these interactions fully. We covered a lot of the key activities that... that- folks can be thinking about one one question that we actually get quite a bit in like the help desk and human firefighters is is, you know once smoldering does begin to occur you know what are the next steps to safely move forward with that you know what should companies be thinking about that stage where they do i guess maybe two parts they start to detect that the pile is heating up or they do detect that you know they have smoldering material in there what are the the next steps they should be looking at yeah like is that not prevention but Dealing with uh, the issue, right? Response. Yeah, response. Nadia, because, you know, my, my forte is most of really prevention. 
rather than response. Response, I think, is something of, I mean, these are the type of things. We never did research on, I have never done research on how you respond to a fire. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not all part of the work. Maybe we should do at one point, but we don't. Those are, uh, but the things that we see people practice is basically removing the loads, uh, using nitrogen, for example, if it is confined space, preventing from oxygen or air get into the pile uh, as much as possible. Uh, you know, whatever is possible to sort of uh, prevent that pentagon or triangle type that uh, happens, you know, the fire and the explosion get either oxygen out or source of the heat out and so forth in there in order to prevent those from happening. And of course, you know, I mean, this is a situation with the pile. Uh, it, it is much better manageable uh, with even water there. You know, on pellets, of course, uh, it's really disaster. You can't really use water. You, you just bulk up the material, especially in a confined space. You can't get the material out and become quite an issue. So nitrogen has been one of the, uh, you know, not carbon dioxide much, uh, but, you know, CO2 basically because of this, you have to pressurize it into the pile. Uh, generally, the, um, uh, the pro proposal is to use uh, nitrogen or, you know, it's one of the way to do it. And the other is, of course, you know, call your firefighters to come in and do whatever they want to do in order to get the fire under control. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and I, I know personally that the answer is not actually out there to this question fully. <laughs> um, <that's laughs> I, I know it's always the, like firefighters ask, you know, what to do with this. But, you know, they, uh, we never, I mean, Chris, our job, at least my job here, is not really to deal with issue. Uh, uh, so work on diluge uh, or work on spark detection. I mean, there people do those kind of things. We're, we're focused on more why prevent material to get to a spark or material to get to a point where they become hot, you know, things like this really is a prevention rather than dealing with the, that that issue. I think that's, that's more of an industry response to it. At the moment, I mean, I'm not saying it's important, but it has its own area of research, area of uh, expertise to work on it, to understand the fires. Yeah. The saying that comes to mind is uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of, of cure, a pound of protection. Um, that being said, it is a real challenge, and we actually have a, a working group that's open right now um, with eight, uh, you know, experts from around the world, from the U.S. and from Australia, tackling this challenge um, to release a deliverable on how to respond to fires and entries that are generating, producing, handling combustible dust in a safe manner. So I don't have this. I don't have the solution mapped out yet, but we are working on it and breaking it down into before, during, and after. So what do you need to do for pre-planning? What do you need to do during the response to avoid escalation? Then, really important, what do you do after to make sure you clean it all up? If you go start your processing machinery again and there's smoldering material still stuck in it, um, you're you're in a real danger zone to cause a deflagration at that stage. So I, 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 I asked the question knowing that having done a lot of work in the area to try to find the answers that they're not all available yet, but 
some pieces of the puzzle are there. Yeah, that's exactly this belt dryer issue that now we're dealing with with um, within Wood Pallet Association of Canada on a safety concern. And, uh, you know, we are subgroup, uh, subgroup one subgroup of this group look, looks at the controls in the dryer. And I'm amazed, you know, at the kind of, uh, the, the way industry deal with it, you know, if something happens, they put a camera there. If if something happens, they put a spark detection. If something happens, like it's all reactive to the situation. It's not really, as you mentioned, exactly how you deal with this, you know, in a uniform, consistent manner. And I see a lot of uh, industry right now is on a trial and error type basis. So it's that the work that you mentioned of your group is, should be an excellent one. Really should be something that feel a, a need, I guess. It's come out of the need from our incident reporting. Um, I don't have the numbers, but maybe half of the, the, the fatal explosions we see are escalations of a fire. And it makes sense, right? You have all five sides of the, the only side of the Pentagon you're missing is dispersion. So you have an active fire, it gets dispersed by an employee with a, a fire extinguisher, it gets dispersed by a fire extinguishing system, it gets dispersed from punching a hole in the silo, from going in with a bucket uh, of a, a loader and, and lifting the material up. There's all kinds of numerous ways that this happens. And that's what causes the escalation to to a fatal explosion. So we looked around. There is some guidance, and and I don't have it here in front of me because uh, we'll put it together for this working group. But that's that's really the purpose of it is okay. Well, let's put this guidance together and work forward on it. So the last kind of thing I want to circle around on this topic, and it's it's unrelated to the topic, but it's important for your work, um, and and actually our work as a sort of a research organization as well. And I, I try to ask any association I have on how they work with industry and how you know research work together and and any lessons learned and, and, and trials and tribulations. But I know you and WPAC, in terms of your research organization and UBC, have a really great relationship. Um, you know, they explain what their challenges are. You guys develop, um, your, your team will develop programs, research programs to tackle those challenges. BC4 Safety Council and WorkSafe BC and, and Manufacturing Advisory Group and others out in, in British Columbia will, you know, give their input in that as well. Do you have any recommendations for either associations or companies on how they can best research, use, um, work with university research groups and use them as a tool, uh, not at their disposal, <laughs> but, uh, you know, to, to help move the whole industry forward? You know, I mean, my recommendation, of course, I we work with the industry throughout my career in Saskatchewan. I work with, you know, with the, Hay Association, Dehigh Association. Uh, when with grain, we work with Canola Growers Association, Wheat Growers Association, Flax Grower Association, and so forth. So uh, this is the way to basically pub, uh, get your material to a form that you can publish it, uh, not only in learned journals, but also in a form that... Uh, the industry can uh, can use it. Number one, number two, uh, participate in their meetings. You know, it's a growers association. They meet, go and participate in their meeting, visit with them, 
and talk with them. I mean, I'm just, my own world is very small and that's what I'm talking about this thing, you know, I mean, and then number three, make your project really relevant. A lot of, well, this is from engineering point of view, a lot of, you know, like if chemists may not work, may work on a project that is not relevant, at least on the surface, but uh, over, as an engineer, uh, we're striving to work over uh, work more um, relevant to the industry as much as possible. We learn from them, participate, make presentation if they ask us to do, uh, to listen to them. That's what I have done throughout the entire my career, and it's really enjoyable. Uh, and they, at times, you know, the industry recognized that, and I received, I think it was 2016. And they call it uh, bioenergy excellence, something from industry, which usually they give it to themselves. Uh, so recognizing that people from university can contribute to the betterment of the industry. And I, my recommendation is that just to, you know, it's, a, it's not a new recommendation. It's not a new thing. It's just keep at it, keep working with them and make it relevant. And then show them that, you know, how they can uh, sustain their industry, you know, in a competitive world, you know, like wood pellet association, wood pellets are produced by at least uh, 20 countries commercially. You have to compete with this, uh, you know, your product is more expensive, but the quality is high and that's, that counts. Yeah. I think that's a great way just to close out this interview. And I couldn't agree more because they're, even when we launched DustX Research and Dust Safety Science uh, at the International Powder Show in 2018, my I added a couple stories about combustible dust start. But my first slide in the presentation was industry, researchers, regulators, and providers, like equipment, safety equipment, and consultant providers. I sort of drew all these arrows between them and like a bunch of question marks. <laughs> like they all they all want the same thing. They want safe facilities at the end of the day. You want to reduce loss. You want to increase competitive advantage. But the the thing that I I wouldn't want to say identify, but the thing that I've tried to point out in that that slide was the communication pathways are are scarce and and sometimes not you know the right information is being provided from one group to another or they just don't talk at all. Um, and then I said we're going to create a podcast to to increase this communication. And here we are today, 143 podcast episodes later, <laughs> and uh, and we're we're talking about this topic. So I couldn't agree more. I think it's the way forward. Um, getting associations and regulators and research groups to work with industry directly, to work with the explosion protection, safety providers, equipment providers, consultants. If we bring everyone to the table, then we have a lot better chance of coming up with good practical solutions that can actually be implemented at the end of the day. Excellent. Yeah, but I really congratulate you. I really think this is good. This is good. Just really do continue and uh, work this way. I mean, you really bridge the gap between, you know, the industry, the and the empirical world, and you know us. And uh, it's really important. No, continue, continue working on it. And uh, you you're doing good work. Yes, for sure. Well, I think we'll cut the interview off there, um, Dr. Hobb. I want to say thank you again for coming on, and I look forward to the chance to get you back on the podcast in the future as well. Yes, I do. I do. Thank you, uh, Chris, for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll talk soon. Sure. Take care. Yeah, bye. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Dr. Shihab Sokhan-Sange, and we've been talking about biomass fiber pile management. 
Uh, we talked a bit about uh, Dr. Schaub's background in the world of agricultural, um, grain drying, his doctoral research, um, working with Oak, Oak Ridge National Labs, University of Saskatchewan, before going on to University of British Columbia. There's a couple of common themes throughout his work, looking at you know biomass, looking at different types of biomass, like really heterogeneous, everything from alfalfa to grass to hay to... Um, and how do we how do we then use that bulk material in different ways? And pelting has a, a pretty big theme through the the kind of background that he mentioned. But when we come to the feedstock itself, he mentioned four key areas: moisture in the feedstock, it's bulky material, cleaning it's a challenge, um, and it's heterogeneous in the sense that you know it could be pine needles, could be bark, could be hardwood, softwood, different species, different materials, nails screws, um, metal fencing, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that comes, comes in when you take this bulk raw material as the feedstock here. And that all provides a challenge then to managing those piles, which are your raw feedstocks into your, either your processing operation or your, your pelting line or whatever that is that you're using at the end of the day. So some of these challenges then, we talked about moisture content, um, contamination, you know, the variety of materials. And we went through a bunch of different key activities that you could be looking at here. So smaller pile sizes is always a good idea. Uh, my guess is in different jurisdictions, um, local building codes would specify maximum heights and that sort of thing. Um, smaller is always better and bigger. You're going to have less chance of smoldering combustion in a smaller pile than bigger. Monitoring temperature, monitoring moisture content. Uh, Dr. Shah mentioned a couple of research projects this group has done looking at moisture content versus storage temperature versus storage time. We really said, well, you can actually experimentally or empirically characterize the time to smoldering or the probabilistic time to smoldering of your material and then use that in your design, use that in your processing operations to provide your guidance on when piles should be moved, when they should be turned, when you should be when they should be used by, how long they should be stored for. Uh, we talked a bit about equilibrium with the ambient air. And the point here is if you overdry your material, it can be just as bad as having it too wet if the if the air is really wet, because it's going to be sucking in that moisture from the air and that's going to cause the heat up as well. And we talked about things like the role of particle size and other contaminants in that. We sort of took a sidebar about this response to dust fires as well, and another one about um, shipping of pellets, uh, which is probably a whole other podcast episode, but it is something that we see quite a bit in terms of container ships arriving at port with smoldering combustion in the ship. And the real challenge there is as soon as it hits the conveyor system and if it flames, then you have this you know flaming mass of, of you know pile on fire on the conveyor, some of these conveyors are moving pretty fast, so they can't really just slam them shut because then they fall off and can cause a deflagration. So we talked with Alan Tilsley a long time ago on the podcast, um, and he mentioned this in the ports in the UK, where uh, that was that was episode ten of the podcast: biomass fire and explosion hazards and UK regulations with Alan Tilsley, and he talked about this challenge of the the stuff arriving, smoldering on the conveyor, and, and what to do. Can you can't stop it? You got to let it go and let it burn out. We circle all the way back at the end to kind of close the loop on um, how industry and university groups, government groups, regulators, equipment service providers, all in combustible dust safety should and can be working together. And I want to mention a couple of key points that Dr. Shah mentioned from the university side. So participate in the industry meetings, go to the industry trade shows, get involved with what they're doing, show that you actually care, make the projects relevant to what they're doing create deliverables that are geared towards that audience. So they probably don't want to read really long technical papers with, you know, tables, uh, maybe a one page sheet with a nice figure on it. And a, you know, a brief caption would be something that much be much easier to digest 
for that group. So really think about how you're creating that material and how you can gear it towards that target audience. And then think about what's in it for them at the end of the day. They have other concerns than you as just an academic research. You know, they, they have competitiveness, profitability, and several others are going to come in. So if you really want to have a good relationship with them, it's good to think about that. I will mention that, and most of the professors out there and research groups will know out there, if you get industry support for your research, it's much easier to get funding at the end of the day. So it pays off for you too to go through this effort to, to get involved with industry. That's probably a whole other topic and something we might talk about in the podcast in the future as well. But I just want to say for today, thank you to uh, Dr. Shahab um, Sokhan Sange. And I know I butchered his name several times in the podcast, but uh, I'll just end it with Dr. Shahab. And say thank you for him for coming on. Thank you to you, the listener, for um, listening to the podcast and for everything you're doing. Industries handling combustible dust, making them safer every day. Um, stay safe this week, and I hope you're staying uh, safe and productive out there. Mm-hmm.